Carpe diem. That's what the Roman poet Horace said 2,000 years ago. Seize the day. Trust tomorrow as little as you may. Those timeless words have been carried on throughout the centuries. In the film The Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams says, Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And we hear similar ideas thrown around today in, in every, everywhere that we go, right? Like YOLO, you only live once. After all, we're told, life is short. And this is the only life you get. So live it up. Go make the most of it. But whatever you do, don't waste it. And this idea pervades so much of what we do and what we believe and how we live. It creates a baseline anxiety that we always need to be doing more and striving for more to make the most of how we live. But that is not the message of the gospel. Today we're beginning a new series called Don't Waste Your Life. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three different parables in the gospel of Luke, uh, which explore and deal with how we steward the things that God has given to us, especially our lives. And while Jesus never actually said these exact words, they can be reappropriated for his call to us today. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life chasing after the wrong things, living only for yourself as if eternity is not a reality. Don't waste your life chasing wealth and luxury to the detriment of your soul. Don't waste your life following anything or anyone other than me. So this morning we're going to focus on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And the big idea I want for us to explore this morning is this. What appears like a wasted life is actually the path to abundant life. What appears like a wasted life is actually the path to abundant life. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And if you don't have a Bible, um, please feel free to go grab one of our great church Bibles, and you can take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, and everything I'm going to be saying is also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, so Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, before I can go on, I think I need to say a few things about hell. Um, because let's be honest, ever since you heard the reading earlier before the creed, a lot of you have heard like Hades and flames and torment, and you haven't actually heard a word I've said so far. So it's just, I need you to all come back and just pay attention quickly. Thanks, Andrea. Because I need to say two quick things. Um, the first is that hell is real. And there's a lot that could be said about that. And the second thing I need to say is that this parable isn't actually trying to teach us anything about hell. It's, it's good if you have questions about, about life and death and faith. Like, that's great. In fact, I've got plenty of questions myself. Um, and it, but while many people come to this passage and uh, try and talk about heaven and hell and everything in between, this passage isn't trying to talk about hell. 
Um, that's not the point of this passage. So if you do have questions, we'd, we'd love to discuss that and explore that with you afterwards. In fact, um, you just heard Preston's getting ordained on Tuesday, so he's becoming like a varsity-level Christian. So go, go talk with him afterwards. He'd love it. Um, but th this parable is actually about something much more near and dear to us than hell. And frankly, something just as uncomfortable. It's about what we're really living for. This whole chapter in Luke's Gospel is Jesus asking the question, what are you really living for? Are you living for yourself or are you living for God? And the underlying question is perhaps a bit harsher too. It's, are you wasting your life living for yourself or are you living for God? In verse 14, we discover that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. And at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus tells a parable about money. And he famously teaches that you cannot serve both God and money. It just doesn't work. And then we see an exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before others, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among the people is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus puts his finger on, on a pressure point, on a nerve for the Pharisees. Because they loved money. And they loved having the approval of others. They loved living for themselves and living for what they thought was the good life. And in response, as a defense mechanism to try and numb and, and just block out what Jesus was saying so they couldn't hear, they ridiculed and mocked him. They don't want to listen to Jesus explain that they can't love their possessions and truly serve God. They don't want to hear that the vision they're pursuing is actually a wasted life. They don't want to be confronted with the truth that their love of money and their, their desire to be exalted among the people and to, to have wealth and possessions. They don't want to hear and comprehend and be confronted with the truth that their brazen pursuit of the status and the good life that they so long for and desire has divorced them from loving and serving God. And so they try and shut Jesus up. They ridiculed him and tried not to listen. And perhaps we need to ask ourselves if we're doing the same thing. In what ways are we holding Jesus at a distance so as not to be inconvenienced by his teaching? The Pharisees ridiculed him. What do we do? Ignore him? Undermine him? Try and explain the ways some of the things he's doing to justify what we want to do? What do we do? Jesus keeps telling them that they're living out of step with God and explains that to them with a parable. It was about a rich man who had everything. He lives the good life and he has it made. He has the finest clothes, he wore the most expensive of designers, and every single day he ate like a king. When everyone else would have been eating soup and bread and fruit, he was eating sumptuous delicacies. And at the front of his gate was a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus, who was covered in sores, had been laid there before his gate. It was as though he'd been put there, placed there, almost even thrown there by others because they figured that at least the rich man could give him some scraps. And moreover, just to make matters even worse, the mangy dogs that wanted the streets would come and lick his sores. And all that Lazarus wanted and desired was to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the man's table. He just wanted to survive and to eat the rich man's rubbish. 
And there's something about how Jesus sets up this parable that we need to pay attention to. Because you see, only one of these people has a name. The rich man who had been known by everyone for his wealth and for his lavish parties, who would have been exalted among the people, he's nameless. But the desperate and helpless beggar has a name. The rich man who is known to the world, he's nameless and unknown before God. But while Lazarus is left despised and rejected outside the gate and left alone to fight off the dogs that are coming to lick his sores, he is seen and known by God. So the scene is set. The rich man lives it up, living the good life in his comfortable, luxurious abode. And at his doorstep lies Lazarus, the desperate beggar who is left alone to fend for himself. And then they die. After all, it's inevitable. It happens to everyone. It happens to the rich. It happens to the poor. It'll happen to you, and it will happen to me. Both Lazarus and the rich man die. And in verse 22, we read, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And again, we see a contrast. The rich man was given a proper burial. People noticed when he died. They noticed and and they mourned his death. They paid their respects. They probably held a, a beautiful funeral service where they honored him and talked about all the good things he did in his life. And then they laid him to rest in the ground. But Lazarus had none of that. No one noticed when Lazarus died. The poor beggar was likely left to rot on the side of the road and to be eat, left to be eaten by the dogs. No one on earth took any notice of Lazarus when he died. But heaven took notice. And God sent his angels to carry him to Abraham's side. Lazarus was brought up to paradise and was seated at a place of honor besides his spiritual father. But not so with the rich man. We're told that he ends up in Hades. And then in verse 24, we read, And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Notice that he says, Father Abraham. Now, Abraham was was the father of Israel, and his story takes up a good chunk of the book of Genesis. And here we see that the rich man calling out to him, Father Abraham, it, it means that he's an Israelite. He belongs to the people of God, but he didn't end up in paradise. When he died, he didn't end up at Abraham's side, basking in the presence of God. He belongs to the people of God, and he looks the part, he played the role, but he didn't live for God. In fact, he later says that he never even bothered to listen to to Moses and the prophets. He rejected the words God spoke to his people, and in doing so, he rejected God. And there are two things we need to notice. The first thing is that the man only thinks for himself. His vision is set in himself, not on God. While he turned his eyes upward in the midst of his suffering and torment, and he saw Abraham. His request is not that he might be with him, but rather that he might not be in pain. He sees Abraham and he calls out saying, hey, give me some relief. Come, give me some reprieve. 
You've got Lazarus there with you. How about you send him to come help me out? Even in his deathly torment, he still desires to live for himself and to make things as pleasant as possible for himself. He commands Abraham to send Lazarus. And both of those verbs are commands. While he calls Abraham father, he treats him like a slave. The rich man is still living for himself, just as he always has. The second thing to notice is that the rich man knew Lazarus' name. He says, send Lazarus. He sees the beggar who'd been at his gate, who had begged him for food, the man he had always ignored. He sees him, and he identifies him. He doesn't say, hey, send the beggar. He says, send Lazarus. The New Testament commentator David Garland explains that the rich man was so used to power in his old life and the clout his money gave him that he acts as if things were unchanged, even in Hades. He does not repent and thinks that he can order Abraham to send Lazarus to be his lackey. This detail reveals that he recognized Lazarus and knew his name. He could not have been unaware that Lazarus was lying at his gate. Though he never spared a thought for Lazarus' needs during his lifetime, the rich man, self-centered even in death, thinks Lazarus should minister to his suffering now. How many times did Lazarus cry out to him as he went through his gate, have mercy on me? You see, the rich man has always lived for himself. He's been aware of, more, of some of the stuff going on around him, and he even knows the name of the beggar who's sitting at the foot of his gate. But he never lifted a finger to help. He lived in the light of himself. In fact, he lived for himself. And he cared so much about living the way that he wanted, living for the things he thought mattered most, for seeking comfort and wealth and success and luxury and status and approval. He, he couldn't care less for the people around him in need. And when I picture this scene, I'm struck by how much this reminds me of the downtown east side. The juxtaposition of extravagant wealth and abject poverty here in our own city. I remember a time a few years back, I was riding the bus to church. And I was riding the number four bus, which cuts to the downtown east side and goes through the intersection of Maine and Hastings. Uh, and next to me on the bus, there was a young couple who looked rather well-to-do. And as we were nearing Main Street, I heard the woman turn to the guy she was with and say to him, oh, this bus goes past Hastings. I wouldn't have gone on it if I'd remembered that. And then with a sneer, she added, I hate seeing that part of town. How often do we go out of our way to avoid the uncomfortable juxtaposition of our own wealth, or even our own getting by, compared to those who are less fortunate than us. Perhaps, perhaps we are a little bit more like the rich men in this parable than we dare to admit. When the rich man is told by Abraham, I can't send Lazarus to you. He changes his tack, he changes his focus. In verse 27, we read, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also should come into this place of torment. And that was probably the most selfless thing the man had ever said in his whole life. And then we see Abraham reply in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's as though he's saying, 
They already have the voice of God speaking to them through the Bible. They can go read that. And in verse 30, he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. No, they don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to do that. They don't want to listen to what was said of old. I know my family. They don't believe it. I didn't. But if someone would just rise from the dead, that would solve it. They would listen and believe it all then. They would be able to stop living for themselves and start living for God if only they would, he would send Lazarus back to them. But Abraham doesn't buy it. In verse 31, he says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Sending Lazarus wouldn't convince them to change their mind. That wouldn't convince them to repent. Their attention is so focused on themselves that even were Lazarus to actually come back to them, they wouldn't listen. And they wouldn't listen because they are too focused on living for themselves. They're too focused on maintaining their own lives and living their lives for them. They are the Pharisees who love their money and their wealth, who are so focused on having the approval of others in society and being exalted by others and justifying how they're living. They don't want to listen to Moses and the prophets who speak against them a word of rebuke, whose words are a stench and a horrid smell which informs them of a way of living which is not in keeping with the way that they want to live. For a dead man to rise and to tell them the exact same message wouldn't change the matter. They don't want to listen because they don't want to hear. They don't want to live their lives for God. They want to live their lives for themselves. And they don't want to listen to any voice that tells them otherwise. They don't want to listen to Moses who said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. They don't want to listen to the prophet Jeremiah who said, let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in their might. Let not the rich boast in their riches. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And they wouldn't want to listen to the Apostle Paul, who wrote, We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pissed themselves with many pangs. The voice to which we listen will inform and dictate the light by which we live. If we listen to the voice from eternity, if we listen to the voice of God in our lives, then we will live according to his light. We will live in the light of eternity, and we will live in the light of Jesus. But if instead we listen to our own voice, or to the voices which tell us how to live for the now, to live it up and justify ourselves before others and be exalted by them, then our lives will be lived in the light of ourselves. And our lives will be wasted. And maybe we can live somewhat morally on our own. We may not live like the Pharisees or the rich man, reveling in our own comfortable private castles. But even that can become an attempt to justify ourselves before others. And I don't always get this right. Um, Back in October, we had a, a church event. It was the Korean Trivia Night, and some of you were there for that. And uh, I made a bus transfer in the Downton East Side to get there. 
And as I was walking between my stops, uh, a woman crossed the street and came over to me. She, she beelined for me. And she was skinny and pretty worse for wear. And when she came over to me, she started speaking in a mix of French and broken English, asking for help to get some money for a place to spend the night. And she said that she hadn't eaten for six days and was surviving off cigarettes. And I have to admit, I tried to brush her off. And I lied to her. I had $25 in my wallet, and I can speak a bit of French. But I looked at her in the eyes and said, I don't speak any French, and I don't have any cash on me. Um, but she didn't take no for an answer. She, she followed me across the street, and, and then she asked if she could say something. And she repeated that she was hungry and needed $17 for a place to spend the night. And there was a bank right next to us, and she pointed to it and said, hey, can you just withdraw some money for me? I'm desperate. I didn't want to expose to her the fact that I'd lied to her. So I went in and withdrew some money from the ATM and I gave it to her. And she was incredibly thankful. And as I was getting ready to leave, uh, she made another comment. And it was a little hard to make out what she said. But it was something to the effect of asking me to keep listening to the voice of God and to disregard the first voice that came into my head. Because that was not God's voice. And that shook me up. And as I walked away, I had this very brief and lucid, clear moment where it was as though the Holy Spirit was saying to me, she saw you and saw me. And then he brought to mind the fact that I had unexpectedly received that $25 the day before. And in the humbling moment, I realized that God hadn't given me that money for me. God reminded me that all I have is his, and I'm just a steward of the things he's given to me. Everything I have is on loan from him, and I'm merely his steward. And that unexpected gift of money I received, it wasn't for me. And I realized that that woman had probably just prayed the day before, or even that same day, for God to provide for her a place somehow to stay the night in safety and to provide for her her daily bread. And on that day, he answered that prayer through me. All we have is from God. It is for God. And he can give, and he can take away. And I wonder, what voice are we listening to? What voice do we each listen to about how to live our lives? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Pharisees refused to listen to Lazarus because they had already made up their minds. But they didn't know how desperately they needed Lazarus. And we don't realize just how desperately we need Lazarus. Lazarus, that, that poor man in the street, the beggar with nothing, is the one who needs to teach us how not to waste our lives. To the world, Lazarus looks like he's completely wasted it. He's wasted his potential. He's on the street. He's homeless. He's hungry. He's desperate and can't take care of himself. Who would ever think that he could actually teach us something about how to live? This guy who's wasted his life. But Lazarus is exactly who we need to listen to. Earlier, I pointed out that in this parable, Lazarus is the only one who has a name. The rich man isn't known to God, but Lazarus is. But there's something I didn't tell you, because you see, it's really significant that Jesus gives Lazarus a name here. Because this is the only parable Jesus ever told where he gave someone a name. And do you know what his name means? What, what Lazarus means? Lazarus means, God is my help. God is my help. 
Think about that. The only person Jesus ever gave a name to is a beggar on the street called God is my help. That is not a wasted life. So many people in our society, in our city, so many of us would look at him and say, he wasted it. Or he made the wrong choices or the system was set up against him. So of course he wasted his life. But God is my help. That is not a wasted life. That is the life well lived. Do you know what the wasted life is? It's the life that doesn't need any help from God. It's the life that doesn't know how to depend on God. The truly wasted life is the life that doesn't know how to depend on God with the things he's given us and doesn't know how to depend on God with the things that he hasn't given to us. Oh, how we need Lazarus. We need to listen to Lazarus. To Lazarus who says, have mercy on me. I'm hungry, I'm hurting, I'm lonely, and I'm desperate. I have no place to sleep, no place to call my own. I'm desperate, and all I have is God. We need to spend time with Lazarus, with the people at our gate. Because Lazarus will help tear away from us the pride and the veneer of all the things in our lives that we think are so important. When we listen to Lazarus, we discover that all the stuff we've been pursuing, all the things we thought were so important, they're not nearly as important as we thought. Because those, all those other things we think are so important, they're teaching us to depend on something other than God. And they're forming us to trust and to hope in something other than Jesus. They're causing us to stake our hope on something that can't support the weight of our soul. Because we're wasting our lives. And we are in desperate need of help. Because you see, what appears like a wasted life is actually the path to abundant life. Jesus did rise from the dead. And he came and he spoke words of truth and life so that we could be freed and truly live. So may we not waste our lives. May we know and understand and trust that God is our help. And in light of that, may we truly live.